Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 11th of January, 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to be joined by David Scott, bringing us northern exposure from north of the border. Don't know whether it's as cold as in Spain, Mike. We'll have to ask him. Uh, uh, is it as cold as in Spain, David? No, no, it's much warmer than Spain. We don't have any and nasty COVID-related snowball action going on here in Scotland at the moment. Uh, okay, good stuff. Well, that's the good news yes. for the news today. That's it. That's all you're getting. Uh, okay, well, we're going to start off with a bit of video from Good Morning Britain this morning. Uh, well, let's just have a listen to what they're calling for discussion about. Now, still ahead on Good Morning Britain, should people be rewarded for snitching on their neighbours who break lockdown rules? We've heard calls from Dr. Hillary this morning about taking things more seriously because we are in such a serious situation. But should we incentivise people by giving them money? What is it we're calling it? Riches, Riches for, for snitches. snitches. What do you think of that? Our director came up with that. Particularly pleased, I think he is. Uh, <laughs> let us know what you think. Get in touch on Facebook. When he doesn't work out here, he's got a future as a headline, uh, headline writer in the tabloid. And so he's very excited about Well, they're all very excited, Mike. They're very excited. I find it staggering that, this, that that is the type of conversation that's being presented in those terms, in the sense that uh, it was all very jolly and yeah. jovial and jokey. Uh, what do you think about it? Uh, what they're really promoting there is the idea of a Stasi state uh, where, well, of course, lockdown policy has made sure that people are now reliant on the state for their income in many, many cases. Uh, people are struggling. Uh, and so if they're thrown a bone, as it were, any opportunity to earn a little bit of money, um, this is going to be tempting for some people. Uh, and I think that's a very dangerous direction to be heading in. Yeah. Also fascinated with the journalists, Mike, because... Um, what is it about these people? Unbelievably naive. They're supposedly there researching, investigating, analysing what's happening around us for the news. Uh, we are marching into a police state and they're laughing and joking as if it's some cartoon show yes. unfolding around them. Yes. Uh, David, welcome again to the well, programme. What are your thoughts on this? Well, the, the tone they're, they're bringing here is the tone that, that we would use discussing, you know, which star should win on Strictly Come Dancing and, and, and what's the latest soap opera. This is everything's reduced to this trivial level. Uh, but you see underneath that, uh, the, the message is, well, we're not sure if the public's going to buy this, but it's time to talk about it. We're going to have a debate. Britain has reached a point where we can have a debate about whether we should be paid or um, informing on our neighbours, or whether we should just do it for free. That seems to be the two ends of the spectrum that, that are being offered here. Uh, indeed. Yeah. Okay, well, let's, uh, let's move on to this then, uh, because uh, Swansea University is developing the world's first COVID-19 smart patch. Everybody should be extremely impressed by that. A smart patch vaccine that will measure effectiveness. So what they're saying here is that researchers uh, are developing this. Uh, it's from the Institute for Innovative Materials Processing and Numerical Technologies, and the acronym for that is IMPACT. Um, they're going to produce the vaccine through the use of micro, or sorry, introduce the vaccine through the use of microneedles uh, to create a smart patch. It will simultaneously measure the patient's inflammatory response to the vaccine uh, by monitoring biomarkers in the skin. Uh, and they go on to make the point that microneedles are tiny needles, their tips are measured in millions of a meter. 
uh, designed to break the skin barrier and deliver medicines in a minimally invasive manner. A classic example is the transdermal nicotine patch that delivers nicotine through skin to help people give up smoking. And they say that these uh, microneedles provide a safe and effective method to deliver vaccines with added attributes of requiring lower vaccine doses, permitting low cost manufacturing and enabling simple distribution and administration. A microneedle micro delivery patch is easy to apply and minimally invasive combined with the proposed measured measurement capabilities this new vaccination system would help a personalized vaccination approach so you get a personalized vaccination approach uh, but david it's no harder than uh, stopping smoking is uh, stopping covid um, and uh, well what can we say we are also going to know whether it's been a successful dosage or not about this mike i saw earlier that they gave the vaccine to a nurse and she had a, a, a severe acute allergic reaction requiring immediate resuscitation and that the advice was that, that, that vaccines should only be applied, these vaccines should only be applied where resuscitation facilities are on hand. How can we have a personalised approach in a nicotine patch-like vaccine delivery system if that's a risk? Uh, that's a, that is a very good question and of course the uh, it, it follows on uh, with the idea of whether vaccination would be mandatory or not, as we'll come on to in a second. But did you have any thoughts on that? Well, it's just nobody in nobody is actually telling the truth about the vaccines at any level within what we can loosely call the mainstream media. The government's not telling the truth. The BBC's not telling the truth. The companies, the development companies themselves are not telling the truth. So at the moment, the truth is out there with with ordinary people who are researching and seeing what other scientists and experts are saying across the country. So we've got now a lockdown on truth in the media as far as the vaccine is concerned. Well, we'll come on to more of that a little bit later. But uh, the question of whether vaccines have been mandatory or not, of course, is one that's been discussed on this programme and many others uh, over the last number of months. Uh, and the government maintaining that it will not be mandatory. Our argument has been, well, perhaps they don't need to make it mandatory in a legal sense because the corporations are going to do that for them. Uh, well, here's uh, perhaps another example of that. Uh, this is Eden Brown Education. This is a recruitment uh, company uh, for schools and colleges, uh, and they have uh, been advertising for a new job. Let's have a look at it. Here it is, COVID Administrator. This is for a uh, further education college in Greater Manchester. The college itself is unnamed, uh, but uh, let's just have a look at the text here. If we blow this up, you will be expected to carry out all aspects of administration, in particular relating to the COVID-19 vaccination that all students will be required to have before returning to college. Uh, and David, this is pretty much what we suggested was going to happen, uh, that people are going to be, you know, as a condition of getting healthcare or a condition of getting uh, education or a condition of having employment or a condition of being able to go to the cinema or go to the gym or go to any other activity that you want to do that involves some kind of corporate entity, that the chances were that through the terms and conditions of that organisation, the, the vaccine, which may not be you know, specifically mandatory in a legal sense, would be mandatory in a contractual sense. Yes, we, we have in the, uh, as, a, as a kind of spin-off of the American Revolutionary War, uh, no education without vaccination. Yes, very good. 
And I also think this is going to be the line with people attempting to visit elderly relatives in care homes and residential homes that you are not going to be allowed in ultimately unless you've been vaccinated at the moment. Uh, some people are able to get in for very short visits if they accept the swabs. But I think the vaccines are, are going to come along as a compulsory requirement. So the state taking control of elderly people. Uh, now, uh, of course, much of what's driving government uh, policy is, has been the number of cases, so-called number of cases of COVID-19. Now, to become a case, of course, you only have to uh, have a positive test. Uh, a positive PCR test could be detecting uh, RNA strands that are months old. It uh, doesn't mean you're infected, infectious. It doesn't mean that you've actually got any kind of disease. Uh, and of course, up until this point, the government has been saying absolutely you may not uh, go for a COVID test until or unless you actually have symptoms. Now, last week on Wednesday, we were making the point that uh, uh, at least in Teesside, there was a testing hub being set up uh, for people without symptoms. Uh, well, this is now, you'll be glad to know, being rolled out across the country. So community testing, the, the government is calling it an offer uh, to local authorities. The community testing offer uh, is gonna be expanded across all local authorities in England to test people without symptoms uh, rapid regular testing for people without symptoms will be made available from this week to 317 local authorities. Uh, and uh, they're saying that expansion of asymptomatic testing will identify more positive cases of COVID-19 and ensure that those inf infected isolate, protecting those who cannot work from home and our vital services. This is government's word, words. Uh, this program is crucial given that around one in three people have coronavirus without displaying any symptoms. That's their claim. Um, but uh, of course, what's the uh, outcome of that going to be? It, because people that are going without symptoms are uh, unlikely to have uh, COVID-19 themselves um, are going to end up being in the receiving end of uh, false positives and so on. And we're going to find all kinds of extra numbers of cases appearing out of nowhere. And what is that going to achieve, David? That's going to achieve uh, more uh, drive towards the policies that government has been pursuing already, lockdown and such like. Yes, the, the, the key phrase is we're following the this, this science. And you know someone doesn't understand science if they use the phrase the science. Uh, or, and that means all they need is uh, some, some figures however flawed, however incredible the figures may be, to justify more lockdown. And uh, that's, that, that's enough to roll this out at this stage, such as the fear in the country, uh, such as the surrender of all the institutions that are meant to protect our liberty. It will only require some figures, flawed figures, unreliable figures they may be, but uh, a few statistics to uh, remove yet more of our rights. Uh, well, removing more of our rights, removing more of our assets as well, uh, because the government uh, has announced an expansion of the dormant assets scheme. Now, for anybody that doesn't know, this is basically if you've got money lying in a bank account, hasn't been used for a very long time, uh, maybe you've forgotten it was there even, uh, may belong to a grandparent or something like that. Uh, if it was in a bank account, then that money over the last couple of years has been being seized by the uh, British government for use for various purposes. Uh, now, if you subsequently discovered that that money had been seized, uh, you were entitled to try to claim it back from the government. Uh, but they have decided to expand this scheme now uh, to include insurance, pensions, uh, investment, wealth management, security sectors. Uh, this, these are all set to be what they describe, set to be unlocked 
with the potential for more than £800 million to be made available to support the UK as it recovers from the coronavirus pandemic. Um, so funding raised through the expansion of this scheme uh, will enable continued support of good causes, social investments and environmental initiatives. Um, so uh, let's just have a look at what the money has been spent on so far. Well, £425 million from the Dormant Assets Scheme has been uh, used to establish big society capital. Uh, we've got uh, £96 million uh, for Fair for All Finance, £90 million going into Youth Futures Foundation, £40 million into Access, the Foundation for Social Investment, uh, £10.4 million going into Engage to Change project. Um, so here's what John Glenn uh, who is the uh, Economic Secretary of the Treasury said. Uh, and David, I'd be interested in your thoughts on this because apparently the expansion of the, uh, of the scheme will mean that more people are reconnected with their assets while the government is busy stealing them. I'm not quite sure how that works. What he actually said is, uh, will mean more people are reconnected with their assets whilst also making more money available for good causes. Um, so can you explain to me how that works? How do you uh, reconnect more people with their assets while you're busy stealing their money? I have no idea. I have uh, no clue how that works at all. Uh, but I would say that it sounds like they're going to be buying the loyalty of a great many more people um, uh, and using them to uh, promote social change. Uh, so we're going to have a, a, an even larger army of change agents uh, paid for by stolen pensions. So uh, that's nice. Yes, and Brian, most people think Big Society was a Blairite idea, which David Cameron maybe ran with a little bit, but it's sort of been and forgotten dropped. about. And that, yeah, the exact opposite. Big Society was put in place in the background. And of course, one of the key things, as David has just highlighted, is to uh, Big Society was there to engage hundreds of thousands of young people to get them doing work which the government thought were the right things to do. So this, this was cultural Marxism by the back door. It was a promoted uh, conservative policy. Eric Pickles was one of the key people as commu mm. communities minister. And that policy has continued in the background, which is why they're now trying to rake in even more money to help fund it. Well, if you're in any doubt about uh, what the government thinks with respect to coronavirus and COVID-19, well, there's a new advertising campaign has been launched. I don't know how much money it's costing, uh, but we're seeing graphics such as this. Uh, you've got to act like you've got it. Uh, the new COVID-19 variant is spreading fast. Uh, we all need to play our part to stop the spread. Uh, and of course, that was uh, uh, followed with uh, a TV advert uh, with the wonderful uh, Mr. Witty. Professor Whitty, whatever he is, um, because the NHS is under such massive pressure that it requ requires a national advertising campaign. Now, what fascinates me about uh, this particular uh, advert is that, of course, Professor Whitty wasn't looking at the camera as he was reading his script. He, he was reading off to the side. Um, so I guess uh, that's because they couldn't afford uh, an autocue of some kind, of any kind. Um, so... What was interesting was that I got a, a, a communication from one of our viewers, and thank you very much for this, uh, saying this. Last night on BBC News at 10, they ran a report on a temporary morgue in Surrey. Uh, it was presented as a new measure, or rather the fact that temporary morgues have been erected in different parts of the country over the past year wasn't mentioned at all. This appeared to me to be an obvious part of their campaign of fear, as Chris Whitty was making the rounds of breakfast shows this morning, uh, warning about possible new restrictions being necessary in the coming weeks. 
curfew anyone. And of course, the, the, the advertising campaign is about ramping up the fear, or at least trying to continue to ramp up the fear, because I think there's a recognition in government that so far this new lockdown uh, isn't getting the engagement that they were hoping for. Uh, but anyway, uh, they're talking about uh, uh, morgues, temporary morgues. Now, there is a temporary mortuary in Plymouth. Um, it has been here since for about a year now. Uh, but anyway, this uh, communication goes on. I was wondering if there's any information on the usage of temporary morgues in previous years. I did find mention of them in 2017 and 2018 and also 2001, but no data on whether they were put to use. Well, I'm not aware of any event which so far would have required such a thing. Uh, the government's claim has been that coronavirus uh, would require such a thing, which is why some of these temporary mortuaries have been set up. But the fact is that the government has been prepared for uh, what they're calling a mass casualty, a mass fatality event for many years. This is uh, uh, a, a freedom of information response from the government uh, on the procurement of national emergency mortuary arrangements, uh, overview report for commercial directorate, uh, and they're saying that uh, as part of the mass fatalities work stream led by the Home Office's procurement aimed to put in place national arrangements for an emergency mortuary as part of the response to a mass fatality incident. Uh, and they talk about the requirement uh, was for provision of a temporary structures to serve as an emergency mortuary. Also included in the invitation to tender where the provision of storage, maintenance and delivery to any local authority in England and Wales within 24 hours of being called and so on. And we're talking about, uh, you know, relatively small amounts of money in the sort of government spending scheme of things, somewhere between 1.6 and 4.2 million pounds, in addition to a retainer fee and so on. But nonetheless, uh, these, these uh, arrangements have been in place for many years, Brian. Uh, they have, and we've been alerted about this before. But if we come back to the fact that we're told that we're in a national pandemic at the moment, but as, as we said last week, we are not seeing the bodies. And uh, if this uh, pandemic was as dangerous as the government says, then surely everybody in the country would be witnessing somebody coming out of their house in a body bag. Sorry to get the uh, into some pretty heavy language, but this is what supposedly we're dealing with, a pandemic which is killing hundreds of thousands of people um, we're not seeing the evidence. So what is what is the promotion of this all about? Exactly. Fear. fear absolutely. Yeah. So uh, here's Boris. And of course, he is also promoting fear. Uh, the idea that the hospital is under more pressure than at any other time since the start of the pandemic is what he's saying. Now, on Friday, uh, we showed this graphic uh, bed occupancy in England. Uh, this the source of this was NHS Digital. We'll show you a little bit more on that in a second. And we're making the point if we look at the occupancy percentages this year compared to last year uh, that in fact occupancy to, uh, was significantly below last year so the question is why, where is all this pressure on the NHS coming from uh, well interestingly enough on the uh, NHS digital page that provides the data for this graph uh, they provide a caveat uh, they say hospital capacity has had to be organized in new ways as a result of the pandemic pandemic to treat COVID-19 and non-COVID-19 patients separately and safely in meeting the enhanced infection prevention control measures. This results in beds and staff being deployed differently from in previous years in both emergency and elective settings within the hospital or within hospitals. As a result, caution should be exercised when comparing overall occupancy rates between this year and previous years. In general, hospitals will experience capacity pressures, pressures at lower overall occupancy rates 
than would have been previously been the case. So what they're effectively uh, acknowledging there, um, David and Brian, is that uh, they have reorganized hospitals in order to separate patients, keep distance between patients. Therefore, there is less capacity in the system uh, and therefore there are going to be capacity pressures as a result. So, you know, in a second, I'm going to be asking a couple of questions about this. But the first question that's obviously to be asked is what's happening to all the staff that aren't being deployed because there are fewer beds? Well, we know part of that answer, and that answer is that the, in particular, nursing staff that come in from agencies are not getting the work. Nobody hears about them because they're not actually being listed as, which they aren't paid um, NHS, directly paid NHS staff. These are agency people, and the agency people aren't getting the hours. They can, uh, we're told by people in the nursing profession, the agency uh, nurses can usually get other work in other locations, but we're not seeing the reports that the, the hours are not going out. Mm. I think that's that's the answer to that bit. Uh, but that brings us on to, on to this, well, the production we just, statistics. Yeah, we just remind people that last week we reported that the NHS had said that due to the intense pressure of coronavirus, they didn't have enough staff to actually handle data. And this was their report due to the coronavirus illness and the need to release capacity across the NHS to support the response. We paused the collection and publication of some of our official statistics. So we, we didn't really believe this. We pinned the statement onto Sir Simon Stevens. He's the chief executive of NHS England. So surely this uh, report would have come from his mouth. Uh, but he's now got very upset indeed. Let's see what he's saying now. He's actually saying that when people say that hospital beds are empty, that is a lie. And where is this being promoted? Well, this is being promoted in the BBC, which has now gone mad, I think the correct expression is, with their uh, reality check team to give us COVID, the truth behind videos of empty hospitals. So the BBC, £4.3 billion worth of the biggest propaganda machine in the world, is now on reheat in order to try and um, combat the fact that people are videoing empty sections of hospitals. So this is uh, part of the article. Um, the number of COVID patients has increased significantly in recent weeks. And there are serious concerns about the NHS's ability to cope with the surge. This is the rhetoric the BBC always pumps out. But on the ground, we are not seeing the evidence to back up these claims. Uh, they go on in this very long article. However, because of the way healthcare trusts are reorganised, hospitals often separating COVID patients from others and cancelling non-urgent care to free up capacity, some parts of hospital buildings will currently look empty. Uh, David, uh, my brain went round in circles at this because when people are busy in busy organisations, invariably you can sense and see that activity. Uh, everybody's come in to do their bit. Um, if they're working really hard, you simply can see it by the buzz, but not in the NHS. As the NHS gets busier and approaches crisis, you actually see fewer and fewer people and fewer wards are open. Um, can you help me out here at all? Because I'm really struggling on the logic which the BBC is trying to put into our heads. It, this, this, is, this is Sir Simon Stevens' high quality analytical thinking here. You see, Brian, 
we're, we're emptying the hospitals so that there's space for the COVID patients. Okay? And there aren't enough COVID patients, so the hospitals look empty. And, uh, no, hang on a minute. That, that can't be right. Uh, yeah, I think that works, well, actually. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think what you just said the, works. They, they, they have, the, the, the position is, the position is the hospitals are empty, but it doesn't mean we're not busy. That's what he said. Well, no one's saying you're not busy. What we're saying is the hospitals are quiet and that it's not tying in with the, with the, the fear-mongering that's coming out in the press. And basically what the BBC reality check team took a long time to say is, yep. Yep. That's it. That's it. So we'll just add that last bit on this. So here it is. Some parts of hospital buildings will currently look empty, but the BBC stresses that that doesn't mean that hospitals aren't busy. Now into the real meat of this article, because the BBC Oh my goodness, they just do not know, not know what to do, what to print, because they are really going for anybody who's been videoing. So they've got lots of, of they haven't embedded the actual videos. They don't want people watching the videos. So they've just captured a still from uh, one of several videos. I've only got some of them here. Regarding the A&E waiting area, the video shows only the entrance to the department. Patients brought in by ambulance or those in a serious condition or requiring admission to hospital are unlikely to be waiting in this area. Well, uh, a visit to Derriford Hospital um, over a number of years and to A&E, sorry, Derriford Hospital in Plymouth would show you, you open the door to the A&E section to find that you can hardly get through the door with people lined up, waiting, getting frustrating, having been sat there in their seats rows at the time. But suddenly uh, all of this A&E load has gone away, but we're now told that this is normal. Well, of course, the people are not being treated. Mm. That's the reality of it. So Croydon University Hospital got its knickers in a twist there uh, with the one we've just shown. There's a bit more to this one. Contrary to videos circulating online claiming to show our hospital is empty, our services remain extremely busy. And as we've just described, that'll be, of course, because certain areas of the hospital are actually empty because of this so-called reorganisation. And uh, this one's really for you, Mike. What uh, we've got, of course, and we showed last year is uh, last week, I beg your pardon, that that um, the NHS is certainly not providing treatment, including major and critical treatments such as uh, treatment for cancer. Well, that's right. So Belfast, uh, as we mentioned last last week, Belfast uh, Primary Care Trust, uh, Health and Social Care Trust rather, has uh, shut down uh, serious uh, like serious um, provision, of, provision services. of services for, yep. for cancer patients as well. Look, there are two questions that I have here. Uh, and the first one is this. Uh, if the hospitals uh, have less capacity because they've shut down beds and shut down wards, uh, then they've obviously removed some staff. Or perhaps those are agency staff, uh, and so you would, you know, the, the permanent NHS staff wouldn't necessarily notice that. Uh, but the, the, there, there must be spare staff as a result of the reduction in capacity within the NHS. So why are the Nightingale hospitals? still closed if there's such a load on the NHS that we're in fear of the NHS not being able to cope. Uh, and the second question is this, and I haven't seen anybody ask this yet. The government knew, based on their own words over the first six months of this 
so-called pandemic, the government knew that the NHS would be in trouble this week or this winter if what they were saying was true, which I don't accept, but that's their point. Their point is that they were claiming that they knew that the NHS would be in trouble this winter. So why did they not resource it appropriately? Now, uh, the BBC has published a statement from, uh, from oh, I've, I've lost the statement. We, we but should say to our audience, Mike, we, we do have a couple of technical problems in the studio today, which make, are making it quite difficult for us to actually deal with the, uh, the news as it comes up. So that's, a, that's why there's a little bit of a hiatus with delivery today. Bear with us. Yes, okay, so anyway, this was Dr. Chad Nagpool. Uh, from the British Medical Association, and he was saying that the main cause of NHS uh, pressure was staffing issues. Uh, he said, we have 80,000 vacancies. You can't just have a doctor or nurse in two sites at once. Okay, fair enough. If you've got a staff shortage, you've had six months to sort that staff shortage out. Apparently, we've had plenty of time to develop and roll out of, uh, a novel vaccine, uh, but we apparently haven't been able to uh, find the staff uh, the, the vacancies in the NHS, but that doesn't change the fact that the capacity with the NHS has been reduced and therefore some staff must have been furloughed. And if they've been furloughed, then why aren't they being taken out of furlough and sent over to the Nightingales? That seems like a reasonable question to me. But some of the Nightingales have been closed as well. So oh, no, the Nightingales have never been reopened since June. They, well. were, they were closed in the summer and they've never been reopened. Yeah. And there's no sign of the Nightingales being reopened. Uh, and staffing is the, the main, the, the usual answer given. Uh, but that uh, just doesn't fly as far as I can see. OK, well, let's follow the uh, BBC's um, troubles through because the BBC desperately unhappy that people are beginning to connect uh, COVID and all the changes around the COVID lockdown or the curfew, as we prefer to call it, and the Great Reset. So let's have a look at uh, how the BBC deals with this. So spreading false hospital rumours. Uh, one particular Facebook group in the UK is dedicated to sharing pictures and videos of empty hospitals, and it has more than 13,000 members. It appears the administrators of this group are linked to another Facebook group promoting a baseless conspiracy amongst the COVID, uh, global COVID pandemic known as the Great reset theory. Now, this is a really excellent piece of BBC spin, and I think we've got to congratulate them on this truly remarkable and devious piece of work. So you now distract people from their questions about the hospitals and COVIDs, and you say, well, actually, because you've linked it through to the Great Reset, this is all uh, useless conspiracy theory. So where, where do we go here? This is another part of uh, an article, the coronavirus pandemic, Great Reset Theory, and a false vaccine claim debunked. And in it, in an inset, they supposedly got another part of the site. It says the World Economic Forum uh, recovery plan, referring to the Great Reset, has been interpreted as sinister, first by fringe conspiracy theory groups on social media, and then shock horror by prominent conservative commentators. So the BBC really worried because people are now looking at the World Economic Forum's genuine reset uh, proposals and saying, these are deeply sinister policies, which they are. And isn't it remarkable that the World Economic Forum also put out an exercise to do with a pandemic on a scale which just happens to mirror uh, the present COVID uh, crisis? So BBC desperately worried about this, but it is all conspiracy theory. Uh, let's add a bit more to that. 
The suggestion that politicians plan the virus or are using it to destroy capitalism is wholly without evidence. Well, I would say on the contrary, the evidence is growing by the day that politicians are absolutely using the coronavirus pandemic in order to not only destroy businesses and the British economy, but larger chunks of what we might describe as capitalism. The BBC says so too is the notion that the World Economic Forum has the authority to tell other countries what to do, or that it is coordinating a secret cabal of world leaders. But that's exactly what it's doing, as every report into the World Economic World Economic Forum meetings shows. So the BBC really very, very unhappy that people are joining the dots. I'll just take you back to 2011. This was the BBC promoting what it described as the Great Reset. Um, you could listen in to them describing how when there are major events in the world, often good things can come out of it. We can reset things, we can move on. Uh, this is a more modern one, which you can see if you go and have a look on the BBC website. Is the coronavirus crisis a chance to, quote, reset the world? So there's nothing fictitious about the reset. Even the BBC is promoting it. It's just the BBC getting very worried if you link the idea of the reset to the fact that COVID is being deliberately um, whipped up. And this interested me because the article that you've just seen on your screen is linked through to what the BBC calls its Rethink initiative. Uh, to me, David, this is absolutely raw um, applied behavioural psychology. Um, we could call it NLP, but actually it's a bit wider than that. But this is programming uh, the BBC's viewers in order to adopt the policies which they think are the critical ones, i.e. Uh, we need to believe in COVID, we need to believe in the Great Reset. But the BBC are, are really finding it quite difficult to remain credible. I mean, they're a £5 billion operation every year um, to provide government propaganda. Now, the government's not going to be happy if they don't get value for money. And this is just not working because the BBC is telling us that the Great Reset and linking the Great Reset to COVID are conspiracy theories. But the World Economic Forum's website, titled The Great Reset, says there's an urgent need for global stakeholders to cooperate in simultaneously managing the direct consequences of COVID-19. To improve the state of the world, the World Economic Forum is starting the Great Reset initiative. So anyone going to this and taking the words and going to any search engine will know in approximately 15 seconds that the BBC is lying to them. Uh, thank you for that. The clarity is required because the BBC, as we will now see, really needs to be taken to task. I took the trouble to have a look at some of the journalists who had been um, carrying out the so-called BBC fact check. I'm going to call it fake news. And this lady caught my attention. She was one of several. So I just happened to decide to have a look at Flora Carmichael. Um, so she, here she is from her Twitter page, a BBC journalist working on tackling disinformation and uh, media education for the Trusted News Initiative. Now at the bottom, it uh, just highlighted um, that she's followed by Demos. I found this interesting that this highly political organisation would follow her. But also this uh, Trusted News Initiative and the Frontline Club 
caught my eye. I thought, what is this? So I went and had a look and here's the Frontline Club. Um, it's a media club for a diverse group of people uh, united by their passion for quality independent journalism. Now, Mike, we, our viewers will know that every time we emphasize independent, we can be sure that the opposite applies. So we had a little look into the Frontline Club and here's part of it. This was uh, something that caught our eye. International Partners is talking about Albania, Bosnia, Czech Republic, Georgia. Let's bring this up on screen. And um, if we have a look, the Frontline Club Charitable Trust partners with NGOs, media centers and independent coordinators across Russia, Turkey, Central and Eastern Europe to deliver a year round program of documentary screening, journalistic training and public discussion. So th this is very like BBC Media Action, perhaps? Very like it. And just before I respond to that, uh, the project is currently supported by a grant from the Open Society Foundation's uh, programme on independent. So George Soros, the billionaire who's manipulating in every democracy around the world uh, with his colour revolutions and general subversive activities, happens to be funding the organisation this young BBC lady is involved in. Uh, now, to make sure that we've done our homework, uh, we had a look on her LinkedIn page. Uh, here she is. And um, she's responsible for media education lead at the BBC. So this is the lady teaching the whole country what is really real, what's true, what's not true, what's political, politically correct. And if we have a look at her background, this is her LinkedIn to the Frontline Club Charitable Trust. Uh, so from October 2011 to 2013, she was manager. But before that, um, still really in diapers after university uh, back in 2009, she was suddenly interfacing with talks, debates and documentaries with NGOs across um, the Russia project. And it says again here, founded by the Open Society Foundation. So this lady clearly cherry picked. And um, what have we got really? Um, what is her allegiance? Is it the BBC and independent news or is she actually something different? So let's go on a bit. Here's a background, University of Oxford, British school in the Netherlands. Now I think she's actually Dutch or she comes from a Dutch family. Um, she's an internationalist. She's been educated as, as an internationalist. And then we find something else that uh, here she is as part of the British German Forum as an advisory board member for Wilton Park. Now, if you don't know what Wilton Park is, please do go and research it. I knew what Wilton Park was, but I didn't know what the British German Forum advisory board was. So I went and had a look and here we are. Um, now, what are they saying? In 2019, they're looking at globalization. Can it still work for all? Uh, so this young BBC journalist is involved in this deep political area. And uh, if I blow up the text here, um, the aim of the forum throughout its 34 year old history has been to strengthen the bonds between the UK and Germany and promote partnership amongst future leaders, interesting terminology, usually aged between 25 and 35 in both countries. As the UK leaves the EU, the need to build understanding and strengthen ties between Britain and Germany has become ever more important. So the British public votes to, to leave the EU and in the background, 
We've got young Flora for the BBC and her colleagues behind the scenes, out of sight, behind closed doors, working to make sure that we're locked into the uh, German EU project effectively. And uh, I'll just pop this up. If you don't know what Wilton Park is in, in totality, and I didn't, it seems, because I discovered that it says it's got the privilege of working as an executive agency, the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office. So Wilton Park is an agency of the British government. The BBC journalist is involved with it, but apparently she's independent. And she's promoting independent journalism overseas, particularly in Russia, which is exactly where the, uh, the, the Foreign Commonwealth Office has been so keen to counter what they describe as disinformation. When in fact they were promoting disinformation, disinformation and misinformation in order to subvert those nation states. So we think there are lots of questions to be asked about all the journalists that the BBC is using uh, to look at their so-called fact checking. And we're going to ask our audience, please, will you look at the people with the names on these articles, get into their backgrounds and help us expose the true nature of these young politicised international BBC journalists. Um, now, in our Christmas special, uh, as we were looking into the new year, we said that censorship would be one of the big issues. Uh, and David, it didn't take long. It did not. And uh, they started with, uh, well, a, a big fish. Uh, Donald Trump has been silenced on social media, uh, most famously on Twitter. Uh, Twitter here managed to make their share price drop 7% by banning uh, the Donald on a permanent basis. Uh, the reasons for doing this were, shall we say, uh, a little tortured. Um, they write here, uh, President Trump's statement that he will not be attending the inauguration has been received by a number of his supporters as further confirmation that the election was not legitimate and is seen as him disavowing his previous claim made via two tweets uh, by the Deputy Chief of Staff uh, that there would be an orderly transition on January 20th. So, so Donald Trump's been banned for how some people are perceiving his words, not actually for anything he tweeted. Um, that's interesting. Uh, they go on. The second tweet also serves as encouragement to those potentially considering violent acts that the inauguration would be a safe target, as he will not be attending. Now, this is what we call a baseless conspiracy theory. So that's what, uh, that's what the ban is based on, is Twitter's own baseless conspiracy theory. Uh, moving on, the use of the words American patriots to describe some of his supporters is also being interpreted, doesn't say by who, is also being interpreted as support for those committing violent acts at the US Capitol. Now, this is bizarre because uh, Donald Trump explicitly uh, called for peace um, and non-violence and respect for law and order. I saw all the tweets, I saw the statements. So this is just A, lying to justify their ban, and also using the word American patriots as a smear. Um, this, this struck me as the sort of dialogue you would get from a, a stereotypical red coat baddie in an American Hollywood B movie. But no, it's now Twitter reasons for banning free speech. And they, and they, they continue, uh, or they complete this with uh, the mention of his supporters having a giant voice long into the future and that it will not be disrespected or treated unfairly in any way, shape or form, is being interpreted, again, doesn't say by who, as further indication that President Trump does not plan to facilitate an orderly transition, despite the fact he said the reverse. 
and instead that he plans to continue to support and power and shield those who believe he won the election. So he's talking about 74 million people who voted for him. Um, they are all now to be silenced because otherwise it's, it, it's going to be terrible. Um, so this is, a, 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 this is Twitter showing quite clearly that they are backing a totalitarian venture. They're backing uh, thought control. They're backing there can only be one narrative. There can only be one story. You cannot think differently. You cannot speak differently. It's, it's a remarkable piece of um, it's essentially self, it's a confession. This is not a reason for banning Donald Trump. This is an embedded confession by Twitter as to what they have actually become. And what they've actually become is shown, I think, quite neatly by a little cartoon I spotted on Twitter. I uh, no, no, we're not we're not gonna show that just yet. We're gonna we're gonna continue with some other stuff, David, and then we'll we'll, okay. we'll finish off this segment with that. Uh, but look, it's not okay. just Twitter, uh, because of course uh, YouTube has been banning all and sundry. Now they've banned Steve Bannon. Uh, apparently because, well, apparently because Rudy Giuliani was on there uh, and uh, was blaming the capital siege, uh, according to this headline in Business Insider, on the Democrats. Uh, but uh, not just YouTube, also Stripe. Stripe has banned uh, the Trump campaign. Um, and uh, so obviously defunding is another option, and that's one that is being uh, pushed forward. Uh, but of course, the big news over the weekend was uh, the, the parlor uh, situation. So parlor um, initially was told by Google uh, that they had to remove their app from, or that their app would be removed from the Play Store unless they implemented uh, some kind of mechanism for uh, controlling speech on their platform. Uh, Apple then followed up saying that they would do the same for the uh, for the uh, Apple uh, App Store. Um, but then uh, Amazon, who was providing the infrastructure for Parler. Uh, decided that really it was just too much for them and they were going to also uh, withdraw that service. So today, uh, Parler, as you can see on screen, is not available uh, because it's been switched off by Amazon. Uh, well, initially, Parler had thought they would uh, be able to be up and running again in a matter of a week or so, uh, but that is not the case. So John Matz, Matz here saying, uh, I want to send everyone in Parler an update. Uh, we will likely be down longer than expected. This is not due to software restrictions. We have our own software and everyone's ready to go. Rather, that is that Amazon's, Google's and Apple's statements to the press about dropping our access has caused most of our other vendors to drop their support for us as well. And most people with enough servers to host us have shut their doors to us. We will update everyone and update the press press uh, when we're back online. Parlor is my final stand on the internet. I won't be making an account on any social. Uh, Parlor is my home. See you all soon. Well, will he, he see us soon? Will Parlor be back? We have to wait and see what they might uh, be able to pull together. Uh, but on the issue of Twitter uh, and Twitter silencing a lot of voices, well, I don't use Twitter too much, but even I have been affected by this. So I've lost 170 Twitter followers in the last uh, few days. Uh, I know that Patrick Henningsen has lost uh, several thousand people from uh, his follower group. Uh, mostly, it seems, because Twitter is switching off their accounts. Uh, Gab then released this tweet this morning uh, saying, we're getting resumes from senior level employees at big tech companies, hearing that many people are putting in their two weeks two, uh, two weeks notice that is, uh, internal civil war among staff and executives, panic in Silicon Valley, the House of Cards falls and the exodus 
has begun. So if that's true, uh, then that uh, seems that things are not all well within the uh, groups of employees within some of these companies. And I suppose that is what we would expect uh, because uh, they aren't universally uh, Democrats that work for these types of companies. Um, but then we had uh, the likes of this from the BBC. Uh, Twitter deletes China's embassies, China embassies, uh, Xinjiang emancipation tweet. Uh, this was all about uh, the uh, an article on one of the uh, Chinese uh, uh, journalism websites, one of the Chinese press websites, uh, saying that the uh, Uyghur women who um, were, uh, you know, ha effectively having restrictions on their uh, ability to have babies uh, was emanci emancipating for them. Uh, and Twitter decided that that would be taken down. Now, I've seen quite a lot of discussion about this online with people saying, well, it's about time Twitter was taking a stand for the likes of this. China's behavior with the Uyghurs is disgraceful and they shouldn't be allowed to use these platforms uh, to get the, to make their points. Uh, but of course, the danger here is uh, that, you know, this particular incident made the headlines in the press, the BBC carried it, <clears throat> excuse me, others carried it. Um, but of course, as this type of censorship becomes more endemic, um, we are not going to even hear about many of the tweets that have been taken down. And so issues that might need to be discussed aren't going to get discussed. But then this raises the question of what Twitter and Facebook and these platforms are. And it's a discussion that's been going on for quite some time. So this is from January 2018 from the House of Lords. Social media and online platforms as publishers. And the question is, are they a platform? Are they a town square, somewhere where everybody can uh, make their their feelings heard, or are they a publisher with editorial control? Um, and if they are the latter, then what does that mean for regulation? This is something that's been discussed over the last two or three years. This is a more recent article. If social media companies are publishers and not platforms, that changes everything because they should be regulated. Uh, this is Financial Review. Social media giants face regulation as publishers, not just postmen. Uh, and this is, uh, well, <laughs> the NATO Association of Canada uh, forums or publishers, uh, social media platforms under stricter content policies. So uh, at this point in time, what we can say is, David, that uh, these platforms are censoring people on the basis of what the, the top management in those platforms uh, feel is the right, uh, you know, they, they are presenting an ideology and anybody that's against that ideology will be censored. But of course, what we're moving towards and what this is all justifying is uh, the so-called idea of online harms and legislating for online harms and therefore imposing uh, editorial standards and regulatory control on these platforms, which is going to have an even more chilling effect on free speech. Absolutely. This is all about government power and the, the power to silence uh, opinion, which is dissident. Um, the, the commercial companies ultimately um, are operating in the, in the space created by the, 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 the governmental uh, monopoly on the use of violence, on being able to confiscate, on being able to close people down. Um, and uh, as a result, in order to thrive in that environment, they've, they've, they've created a, a symbiotic relationship with the government. The, the, the Twitters and Facebooks of this world support the government line and the government uh, make sure that no one else uh, can compete with Twitter and Facebook without being closed down. The, the, this is um, um, monopolies uh, are us. 
Um, which brings us then to your uh, your graphic, your cartoon. Yes, uh, I thought it was a lovely little summary of where Twitter has got uh, got themselves. This is Twitler, and uh, uh, the little the little Twitter bird uh, has got himself a moustache, uh, a, a distinctive haircut, and a Nazi armband, and uh, that is what it's uh, like. Um, it is indeed. Um, okay, well, look, uh, let's come on to uh, Joseph P. Farrell then and the situation in the United States in general. Yes, uh, Joseph P. Farrell, this is one of Alex's favourite uh, commentators from the States. He's not a gentleman I've followed a great deal, but I was very struck with his summary of the situation in America immediately following the events of last Wednesday at Capitol Hill. Uh, and he was commenting here, uh, on, on America, he said, we are a banana republic under colour of law. And I thought that was absolutely spot on. And, and he continued, uh, and he said, I, I no longer feel like a citizen of the United States. I feel like an exile living in a foreign land, because most of the things I hold dear culturally are as far as possible from those in the swamp. I don't know where we go. Um, I think a lot of us in the UK know exactly how he feels there. Uh, and he continued on, and he said, I do know that any way forward must take an honest, thorough moral search of the foundations of the culture, and more importantly, of this country and its polity. We can take a look at the Constitution, but we must realise that the Constitution itself may be part of the problem, and no one recognises that better than Rothbard, uh, re referring to Murray Rothbard. Uh, the Austrian economist and uh, libertarian uh, scholar. I, I thought that was an excellent view be, uh, because it, it looks at the, the, the deeper cultural underpinnings and legal underpinnings of the problem and it realises that many of the things which we're now seeing manifest have been, have been problems in our societies for centuries and have simply not been addressed. And as the situation has got worse and worse, we're reaching a crisis point where we will increasingly not recognise our own, our own nations as, as the, the societies we grew up in. Uh, so I thought that was extremely astute from, uh, from Joseph P. Farrell there. Yeah, I'd, I'd just add to that, David, it's obvious from the communications coming into the UK column that people are seeing, well, our, our supporters and our viewers and listeners are certainly seeing it, uh, so many people are coming back with this question, what can we do about it? And I think we really have got to push the idea that any, any little chink that you see that really get, upsets you, that's your passion, that's the one that you've got to challenge on. You've got to be writing, you've got to be pushing, telephoning, challenging the MPs, challenging the local councillors, talking to people. It's doing something. It's not enough just to watch things unfold. Um, okay, now, if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then uh, please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community. There are options to help us out there. Um, we uh, obviously need your support to share our material. Uh, we're on Twitter, we're on Facebook, we're on YouTube. We're also on BitChute. And today, for the first time, we're streaming out live on uh, D Live as well. Um, so uh, hopefully that will create a new audience for us too. Um, we will get the details of that up. This is basically just a, a pilot today to see that it works okay. It seems to be streaming uh, quite well. 
Um, and uh, hopefully we'll get a larger audience on that channel as well. Yeah. Uh, but David, uh, what's been going on in Scotland? There's uh, a March for Freedom going on today. There's a, there's a march uh, underway as we speak um, from Holyrood to Butte House, uh, which is uh, Nicola Sturgeon's official residence in Edinburgh's Newtown. Uh, so a few hundred hardy souls um, are marching to pronounce that they do no, not wish to be slaves and they do not wish to be afraid, but they wish to be free. Um, they have the company of a great many police officers from Police Scotland. Um, so this is a photograph uh, taken uh, around about lunchtime today. And the comment that we got from our uh, correspondent on the ground was there were 18 or more riot vans, one car, five bikes uh, on the route total intimidation. Uh, so we will see what uh, Police Scotland will do with all of those resources uh, against what is uh, an entirely peaceful march, uh, simply calling for the restoration of our ancient liberty. Um, but the uh, the police response uh, getting a bit harder. So this is uh, the Mail Online. New COVID crackdown begins. Four people are fined for going to McDonald's together. Officers stop cars to quiz drivers and mass cops arrest 28 activists for breaking lockdown rules during London protests. Yes, so all across Britain we're seeing this. We're seeing an increasingly hard line being taken by the police. Uh, we covered this, and we might talk about it a little more, we covered it uh, on Friday, looking at the, the raid on an Aberdeen house, um, and we're seeing it all across the country that things are getting harsher, but uh, not as harsh, it would, it would seem, uh, as they are going to get, because the government has been speaking uh, about a yet tougher um, uh, lockdown. So here it says, number 10, again, the Mail Online, number 10 considers a tougher lockdown with curfews, exercise limits, compulsory masks outside, no support bubbles, nurseries shut. If COVID cases keep rising amid suggestion, people may only be allowed to leave home once a week. So essentially there is no limit to the amount of oppression that we will get um, and it's entirely unconnected to any actual harm from any actual disease. This is simply uh, threatening, bullying and cowing the public so that they, they spend all of their times terrified and locked in their own homes for fear of their police force. Um, and I raise again the issue of asymptomatic testing. So they are now going to uh, encourage people to get tested whether they've got symptoms or not. Uh, that will result in all kinds of new numbers of cases, Brian. And that's really what's going to drive the justification for curfews. Yeah, it, I, I've used the word before, do it again. But overall, when you analyse what's happening with COVID, it is a scam. Is there a virus? Yes, there's no doubt about this. Have some people died? Yes. But is it the pandemic on a scale and has it got the danger? The government says the answer to that on their data must be no. It's a scam. Absolutely. So, uh, David, we've got a new article on the website, uh, Lockdown, a police constable's perspective. Yes, this is an excellent, it's an open letter by a police constable um, who, who has to remain anonymous because of the environment in which he and we all um, exist. Um, it's a, 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 a very inspiring letter that shows the quality still left within the police force. Uh, it, it finishes with the following paragraph. Uh, for the time being, he writes, I will do my best to resist the rapid and destructive changes to the job that I felt called to do to make the world a safer and more peaceful place. 
and to serve the public without fear or favour. I do not know how long this resistance can last. Yeah, I, I think we're going to get more of these and it's just what we need. Uh, so well done to that particular uh, police constable. Okay, uh, we've got a tweet here from Eva Bartlett uh, saying, Today in fascism, I was sat on a bench having a coffee. Uh, this is not this is not antisocial. And uh, it's quoting a tweet, basically talking about the COVID cops at it again, terrorising citizens uh, for what? Walking. Uh, and this is more evidence of the direction of travel. Yes, the, the, the rules don't mean anything. They, they never really did. But increasingly now it's arbitrary. Uh, no one can know, the police certainly don't, uh, what the rules actually are or what they're for or what the rationale behind them is. It's simply increasing intimidation. If you're outside your home, you are subject to intimidation by the police. And um, uh, th this is obviously playing badly because we all have a weapon. It's called a smartphone. It has a camera. It has video. And we've still got some access to social media and we can, we can film the police and other officials and put the results out there for the world to see. And of course, this is playing very, very badly. Um, and uh, the police are getting quite nervous about the whole thing. Uh, we'll come on to a bit more of that in one second. But uh, Brian? Well, I've, I've picked up on this as well. I tried to uh, frame it in my own words. The UK police make up the law. The police, uh, sorry, the UK police are the law and the law has no limits. And uh, this was uh, one of the articles that I saw, COVID fines reviewed after women surrounded by police. So these ladies got in their car, they drove five miles to, to um, a country location and they got out for a walk. Uh, they get picked up by the police, they get fined 200 pounds each. Derbyshire police initially said driving to exercise was, quote, not in the spirit of lockdown. So we've now got law being driven by a spirit, David. And of course, I think we'd have to assume that that's a pretty dark spirit. Um, just to update, there was then guidance came out from the NPCC over the weekend, uh, which told the police not to do that anymore. And so Derbyshire police then subsequently issued a statement saying, that they were going to be a bit more sensible about how, the, how they were managing yeah. people going to country locations. Well, my response to that, Mike, is OK, good in a way they've stepped back. But everything the police do at the moment is either vicious and brutal or it's confusing because the, the public don't know mm. how to respond to them. And of course, this is the psychological attack on people. We are going to be covering this a lot more in the coming weeks on the UK Column website. Uh, but this is a psychological attack to create fear. And as a psychologist said to me, people are being taught a learned helplessness. So if we follow on and we're going to be locked in our houses and only allowed out once a week, we are going to be like the proverbial scared rabbits if we allow it to happen. Um, so uh, what I picked up on with this particular article were tweets that people had sent out. I've just put two. Uh, they drive five miles, five miles to go for a walk and then had a cup of coffee, breaking the law. And I'm pleased they've been fined. So this is the sort of comment from somebody who has not got a clue of the danger of what's going on. Um, I've taken them, as you can see, off Nigel Farage's Twitter page because he picked up on this and is supposedly speaking out. But what we can see here is that people are turning on each other. And this is exactly what the government's and sages applied psychology 
uh, agenda is about getting people to police themselves based on circumstances which are actually false so dangerous i'm allowed to say uh, yes uh, but uh, then we've got dorset police and bournemouth uh, because there was a bit of protest going on over the weekend just small protest in bournemouth um, but and the police uh, made some arrests because apparently people were uh, being very badly behaved and were refusing to give the police uh, their personal details so there were a few arrests uh, the police however obviously getting a little bit sensitive about the potential uh, criticism that they've been receiving and they've decided to try to turn it in the other direction and blame the protesters. So this is this was uh, uh, the assistant chief constable for Dorset Police. We believe this, this video was planned, staged, managed and recorded by members of a protest group who turned up in multiple areas, several of whom refused to engage or provide their details. If people refuse to give their details in such circumstances, that leaves officers with little option but to arrest until details are established our officers would only arrest as a last resort he claimed uh, he said it was clear that the group was deliberately organizing their activities walking around in twos and then trying to come together in a flash mob style approach as they have done previously uh, this activity went on for a couple of hours uh, and i have to say david this is absolutely disgraceful that 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 people would bait the police in this way and uh, we shouldn't be encouraging this at all well, the thing is, you were talking earlier about, about psychological intimidation. How did this man finish off, uh, Mr. Vaughan? Um, I added, uh, our country is gripped with infections, and yet these irresponsible individuals have ignored what is being asked of them, asked, uh, and have left their homes to protest. Shame on them. So they're trying to shame. They're trying to use shame, which is a psychological weapon. They're trying to use... Um, the public to um, to engage with with the protesters and police them themselves. Um, this is all an attack on how we think. This is to make sure we can no longer think free. Uh, yes. Uh, now, look, we're going to uh, move on to the uh, the Aberdeen uh, incident that we covered on Friday's program. We don't have time, David, to show the video, but uh, just just bring us through this. This is the mail's coverage. Uh, three people are charged with assaulting police after officers entered families' home. We did mention this on Friday, but you've got a bit more. Yes. Um, let me just get to the right point. Now, yes. So th this is a spokesman. This is the police response, right? Um, a spokesman said, we received a complaint from a member of the public regarding a breach of coronavirus regulations at a property in Aberdeen on 11.20pm. So it's late at night uh, on Wednesday the 6th. Officers attended and two women aged 18 and 48 and a 43-year-old man were charged in connection with assaulting police officers and threatening and abusive behaviour and will be reported to the Procurator Fiscal. Now, I'd have to say, this is the sort of assault where you assault someone's fist with your face. We all saw the video, right? And this is the importance of having a, a, a smartphone and videoing the police and other public officials. We all saw what happened, we saw where the aggression was coming from, we saw the home invasion, we saw the fact that there was no party, there was no reason for the police to be there, and they just escalated and escalated and escalated, and the violence was started by the police. Yeah. We saw it on video. Um, now, it then went to the Chief Constable, Ian Livingston, for his comment, uh, and it got worse. So he, he announces a, a, a probe, he orders a probe, into the viral video of the police incident. 
uh, he's going to investigate the circumstances surrounding the confrontation between the police officers and the officers of the property in Aberdeen. And then he says uh, some quite concerning things. Uh, he said, as things stand at this time, I'm satisfied about the legitimacy and proportionality of the police response. Now, that's worrying because it clearly was disproportionate. So that says right away that the chief constable in Scotland is not able to protect the Scottish public from violence by his own officers. So that's a problem. And he then continues uh, adding, police did respond to concerned calls. Notice it's now plural. Uh, from members of the public. We've got more people reporting now. So that actually contradicts the previous report from Police Scotland. That's worrying because it doesn't, it's not clear as to whether, whether um, Ian Livingston is in fact um, exaggerating for effect here um, about what appeared to be an ongoing house party. That's just, un it, that's not credible, I'm sorry. Uh, officers then attended the address that they had identified and spoke to the occupants. And uh, now what's come out of those circumstances is that three adults have been charged with crimes of violence and crimes of public disorder. Again, not credible. We've seen the video. Um, saying the incident also uh, is also recorded by police body cameras, the chief constable continued, I would urge everyone to exercise caution when you see partial coverage of a particular event. Do not read into things you can't see or make inferences that are not clearly there. Ian Livingston, we saw the video. It was perfectly clear. We saw where the violence started. It started with your officers. And if Ian Livingston can't see that, then Ian Livingston needs to find a new job. Um, right, David, however, just, we, David we, just to in, interject there, uh, there's something very devious that he's doing because when you've got police with body cameras, invariably those bo body cameras are actually filming the people directly in front of the police. And unless there's a group of police and, pe and police are stood to one side, they're not actually filming the police's response to the people. You're not seeing the facial expressions. You're not seeing where the hands are of the police. So for him to attempt to say that a police body camera is there showing a true picture of, of um, an altercation or an interaction between the police and the public is, is, is devious, is very devious, because it's not true. That's a very good point, Brian. Uh, yeah. We have, um, obviously, the First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, to protect her interests here. And she said, all of us these days know that we have to take some care when looking at things in social media, just remembering that things often don't look exactly as the reality is. <laughs> so Nic Nicola and the police will tell you what reality. Don't believe your eyes. Your eyes will lie to you, but, but, uh, but police, police Scotland will never lie to you. That's what she's trying to suggest. Uh, I don't think that one's going to fly. Okay, well, we've got to end, but we, we, let's end on how reality is formed. And of course, the BBC is central to that. So a big thank you to the person who sent this article through to me over the weekend, because I'd missed all this little business. The new BBC chairman has donated over £400,000 to the Conservatives. So the word independent instantly comes to my mind. Um, so this is Richard Sharp. So Byline Times reporting this. Um, uh, if we have a look at uh, Oliver Dowden, got his name right today, so Mike will be happy about that. Uh, Sharp is exactly the chair the BBC needs right now. I'm confident he will drive forward reforms to the BBC to ensure its impartiality reflects and serves the needs of all parts of the UK and evolves to remain a global success that is central to British national life in the decades ahead. 
And we got a bit of, com of comment from the Labour Party. This is pretty interesting. Richard Bergen, he says the government has appointed as chair of the BBC, a multi-millionaire former Goldman Sachs banker who was once Rishi Sunak's boss and has donated hundreds of thousands of pounds to the Conservative Party. The whole system is rotten. And that's why his party is continuing to support and vote for those rotten Tories. So uh, BBC, I think we can see clearly what it is. Uh, David. Just before we finish, if, if you could fit one more slide in, the one on Israel, if that's uh, possible. Okay, okay, if you would like to do that. Right, so, 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 so this is this, this is an article from this week from Haaretz uh, from uh, a gentleman called Adam Raz, who is a, a researcher who's been looking into the historical records of uh, the Israeli um, policy in uh, inside Israel, but in Arab areas between 19, the end of the war, 1948 and 1966. Um, so this is how they treated the Arab uh, populated areas inside the state of Israel. That's on the Israeli side of the Green Line. Um, and uh, the, the, the headline is how Israel tormented Arabs in its first decades and tried to cover it up. Uh, and they got testimony from recently declassified documents together with historical records and archives shed light on the acute violence that prevailed in the state within the state that Israel foisted upon extensive areas of the country where Arab citizens lived from 1948 until 1966. The reason I raise this today is I remember Gilad Artsman uh, on um, our, our programmes, uh, amongst other venues, stating, we're all Palestinians now, right? And this is true. The way that the British state is treating the British is exactly the same as, as this um, report here from Haaretz. So this is the way that states, it would appear, uh, eventually behave um, and we are all going to have to get used to a great deal of uh, oppression and we're going to have to learn how to resist. Uh, yes, indeed. And we'll just end with this, David, a fantastic, well, I guess it's a sticker on a lamppost or something. Uh, please keep your hands washed. Uh, and it's labelled the BBC, and they're saying, we'll keep you brainwashed. I think that is brilliant. It is absolutely perfect. So that's, the, that's the nature of the BBC these days uh, in one uh, handy sticker. One handy sticker, and uh, BBC chaired by a former Goldman Sachs banker with connections to Rishi Sunak. So we've got nothing to worry about. We'll leave it there. Uh, we just should say we're very sorry we can't do an extra today. Indeed. We'll so we'll be back at 1pm on Wednesday. We'll be back at 1pm on Wednesday. Thank you very much for everybody sending us material. Please continue. We, uh, please continue to highlight things because we may have missed uh, those things. And uh, we need your help and support to get the material out as long as we can. So thanks for joining us. We'll be back on Wednesday. Bye-bye.